Bless you. All right, well, if you have your Bibles uh, this morning with you, I'd love for you to open them up to Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. That's on page 913. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, we'll put the, uh, the readings up on the screen as well if you don't have either of those handy. We are jumping back into the series that we started before Christmas where we're walking through the book of Acts. And uh, I've met a number of people this morning who, who said that uh, this is their first time back since COVID. And uh, so it may be that there are folks trying to get up to speed with us. And, and so let me just tell you why we're doing this. COVID was a huge disruptive event. It doesn't matter what you think about the virus. Uh, can't be denied that the experience we've, we've had over the last three years has, has changed our culture forever. And, uh, and so everyone is kind of thinking, you know, what is church going to look like? What's anything going to look like? But what's church going to look like on the other side? And so to resource us in that conversation, we've gone back to the book of Acts. One of the things the Bible says um, again and again and again is that back is the way forward. If you ever find yourself lost in life, if you ever find yourself lost as a family, if you ever find yourself lost as a church, then you go back. You, you go back to the original design. You go back to the way things were in the beginning, and you look for principles and patterns that can help you find your way forward. So that's what we're doing. So uh, before Christmas, leading up to Christmas, we covered Acts 1, 2, 3, 4, and then we got into our Christmas break, and we're jumping back into Acts 5. I will tell you, I mean, one of our commitments here at the church is we preach on what's next, right? So if you ever come here and you're like, why are they talking about that this morning? Is it because of, you know, I've had people say to me, did you pick that topic because you knew what, I, what was going on in my life? And I was like, no, honestly speaking, uh, I can tell you, like, our commitment is we're going to preach what's next. But I, so I will tell you, I was, I was secretly pleased that this wasn't the message uh, leading into Christmas, because it's, it's hard to go from Ananias, into, into, Ananias and Sapphira into like, joy to the world, woohoo, because uh, this is actually like a low water mark. This is, this is a hard story. This morning, we are talking about the first scandal in the history of the church, now, what's interesting about the scandal is that it, it wasn't reported in a Roman newspaper. It wasn't exposed by a, a bunch of, you know, super eager social uh, media users. Uh, rather, it was narrated transparently in the pages of the Bible. We're talking, as I mentioned, about the story of Ananias and Sapphira, a story that many of us wish wasn't in the Bible. It certainly doesn't help the cause. Do you ever feel that way? Maybe as a Sunday school teacher or, or as maybe just a regular Bible reader, you're like, ah, did we need this story? Uh, it, this doesn't make us look good. Uh, this, this doesn't, you know, make anybody want to run out and join the church. You, you can't use, or probably you shouldn't use anyway, this story as, as the, the, the foundation for your fundraising campaign. Like, <laughs> don't. If you take nothing from the message this morning, please take that. Do not use this story for your next fundraising campaign. It's not a great story. It seems to suggest that even in the church, people can be jealous, petty, and deceitful. And it introduces a note of wrath and judgment that I think most of us assume fits a little better in the Old Testament. But here it is. It's a hard story to read. But we're getting good at reading hard stories about the church, aren't we? A few weeks ago, Christianity Today uh, released an article. Uh, you know how it is when you get to the end of December of a year, 
everybody's releasing their you know, top 10 stories, top 10 movies, top 10 everything. Well, Christianity Today uh, released an article called Top 20 Stories of 2022. And I read that, and I was saddened to see that seven of the top 20 stories of 2022 were actually stories of church scandal. Uh, there were, that's a high percentage, seven of 20. There were stories of sexual abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, there were stories about the attempt to cover that up at the highest levels of power. There were stories about pastors engaged in inappropriate relationships. There were stories about presidents of schools and seminaries who were acting like gangsters and political hacks instead of men of God. It was not a great year for the church. And yet one of the funny things about the church is that we tell these stories about ourselves. That list of scandal was not printed in Time magazine. It was not released on BuzzFeed. It it did not go out through Huffington Post. It went out through Christianity Today, which is known as the flagship of evangelical journalism. We write these stories. We shine the light on our warts and weaknesses. Why do we do that? Well, we do it because... We were told to live in the light. And we're doing it because we're following the example, the pattern that we see in the Bible. It's in the Bible that we find the story of Abraham and Hagar. It's in the Bible that we find the story of David and Bathsheba. And it's in the Bible that we find the story of Ananias and Sapphira. So we'll read it, and with the help of the Holy Spirit, we will endeavor to reflect and to resolve as we should. So hear now the word of the Lord beginning at verse 1. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you have sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, with your Bible still open, let me just remind you of the wider context. That's a, it's, it seems odd to jump back into the Bible in really what's part two of, of a story. And as I said, if you're just rejoining us after three years away for COVID, uh, you're jumping in after a lot of ground has been covered. So let me, let me see if I can catch you up to speed. In the first couple of chapters of Acts, it's kind of onwards and upwards. It's, it's, it reads like the glory days. Everything's going great. The Holy Spirit falls. 3,000 people are converted on one day. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. 
And then when you get to Acts chapter 4, which is immediately prior to the story we just read, there's this wonderful story. The Holy Spirit is moving so powerfully in this church that people voluntarily, the Bible's at great pains to indicate, this is voluntarily, people are so excited about what's happening, so desirous of investing in the progress of, of the kingdom that they start selling stuff. They start selling possessions so they can give more generously, invest more deeply in the work of the kingdom. And uh, one particularly noteworthy example of this is mentioned. There's this fellow named Barnabas, who of course later in the, in the book of Acts becomes quite a, a famous character. And he sells a, a big piece of property that belongs to him and he brings the entire sum of money, 100% of what he got for the piece of property. And he comes and he lays it at the apostles' feet so that they can distribute it into the work of the church for the furtherance of the mission. And everyone is overwhelmed by this act of generosity. It'd be like if we said, you know, special announcement. We do special announcements. We said, you know, baby born. What if we said, you know, I don't know what color the balloon would be. Maybe green. I don't know. We, we floated a balloon. And we say, just, you know, incredible news. Uh, you know, the Smiths or the Jones, they just sold their house uh, up by the golf course and they brought the entire proceeds, $1.8 million to invest in the Christmas offering to support the King, Kingsway's orphan program. And what would we all do? We'd stand up and we'd clap and, and we'd just be so excited about that. Well, that's exactly what happened. The act was celebrated. The story was told. I mean, that story made it into the Bible. Can you imagine doing something at church that made it into the Bible? It's a big deal. And, and, and that fact, that response stirred up jealousy and ambition in the heart of Ananias and Sapphira. And that's the connection between the story. So th that's why we're looking at this story. It's the mirror opposite of that story. The Barnabas story is the good story. This is, yeah, but you know, every good story tempts a bad story. So let's be very clear. The sin in this story was not failing to give 100% of the purchase price. The sin in this story was petty jealousy and a desire for vain glory. Ananias and Sapphira engaged in hypocrisy, play acting on a grand scale. Now, I don't think this story is in the Bible so that we can preach the mirror opposite of, of the sermon we preached just before Christmas. Right? We, when, you, when we look at an illustration of good giving, then naturally we say, well, you know, here's some principles. Well, now we're looking at an illustration of bad giving, and guess what? The principles are going to be basically the same. So I, I don't think it's, it's there just so that we can say the mirror image of what we said a few weeks ago. I, I think it's there to impact us in a more general way. I think we're intended to be shocked and startled a little bit that there could be this kind of sin in a church where the Holy Spirit is so powerfully and obviously active. It's a bit of a gut punch. It's a wake-up call, and it should summon us to reflection and resolve. So let's do that. Let's begin with the matter of reflection. When we zoom out and we consider this, this story, when we look at the fact of this scandal, I think it would be difficult to avoid the conclusion that as long as there is sin in us, there will be scandal and misconduct in the church. I think that's very important for us to understand. The church is not a collection of perfect people. Rather, it is an assembly of redeemed people who are being slowly but surely transformed by one degree of glory to the, to the next, the Bible says. One degree of glory means slow and steady process. 
So until that process is completed, there will be remaining sin in each of us, and that will represent an opening, an opportunity for the devil to climb into our lives and then through our lives into the church as a whole. That seems to be the message here. Look at verse 3. So if you still have your Bible open in front of you, look at verse 3. Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? That was the issue, right? They lied. They said, oh, we're just like Barnabas. We're giving 100%. We just sold our house too. Now the market's a little down, so we only got 550 for it. But, but uh, we're giving 100% too. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? So obviously Satan plays a role in this story, right? Satan has filled his heart. Satan has breathed this idea into their heart. But that's not to say that they're off the hook, that they're not responsible. Look at verse 4. He says, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You put this scheme together. Satan blew the little suggestion in your heart, but you put it all together. You have not lied to man but to God. Always in the Bible, we are responsible for what we do. Nobody gets to say on Judgment Day, well, you know, the devil made me do it. And why'd you make the devil so smart? Let's start there, God. No, not a good play. Don't go that route on Judgment Day. Nobody gets to say that. We are responsible for the things that we do. And yet the Bible does, does acknowledge that this, this, there was satanic suggestion here. How does that all work? The Apostle James is very helpful he says in James 1, 14 to 15, he says, but each person is tempted. Here's how temptation goes. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, isn't that an interesting bit of imagery? When it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So James uses the analogy of conception. He says that it works like this. Here's how you get a sin. Um, it starts with the desires of our own heart. So the desires of our own heart are like the egg. And then the seed that impregnates the egg is, is this satanic suggestion. But of course, the thing is, there'd be no sin, there'd be no temptation if there were not these disordered desires floating around in our hearts. And therefore, the more disordered desires, the more unchecked ambition, the more unrebuked petty jealousies you harbor in your heart, the more opportunities there are for the devil to gain a foothold in your life and through you to gain a presence and an influence in the church. So mark it down, brothers and sisters. As long as there is sin in us, as long as there is sin in you and sin in me, there will be scandal and misconduct in the church. Then secondly, as we consider the story as a whole, it's difficult to avoid the conclusion that sins in the church are judged with particular severity and harshness. As I said, this story does kind of feel like it, it belongs in the Old Testament. It's a bit jarring, right? We're used to re reading stories like this in the Old Testament, and then we say, well, wow, but then Jesus came, right? And, and, and God, you know, was happy all the time all of a sudden. Well, first of all, that's bad theology. Uh, and second of all, that's not all what happens. If you keep reading the Bible, boy, when you get to the very end of the Bible in Revelation, don't you find that the holiness of God is just as foregrounded there in the last several chapters of the Bible as it is anywhere you might look in the Old Testament? Certainly God doesn't change. 
But certainly this story is a bit of a wake-up call for us, isn't it? It reminds us a great deal of the story of Achan in Joshua 7. Commentators often point that out. I'm sure maybe if you're a veteran Bible reader, the same thought occurred to you. In Joshua 7, we have that story. It's the story we, we don't spend as much time on in Sunday school. And that's not a knock on Sunday school teachers. Uh, you, you start with the foundations, the basics and stuff. But it is interesting. At some point, as a grown-up, don't you start noticing and you think, all the stories they didn't tell me, right? Well, that's why you got to keep reading and learning on your own. In Sunday school, we teach you the story of Jericho. It's a good one. You probably, if, you're, if you grew up in the church like I did, at some point you probably went to a VBS where the theme of the week was marching around Jericho and you got your garbage can lid and your hockey equipment and you dressed up as a soldier and you, you marched around the church and shouted and the neighbors thought you're all loony. Uh, great fun. The story of Jericho is the story where God gave an incredible victory, very unexpected, to this ragtag little army. They were able to defeat this huge, really the, the main fortress in the area, the city of Jericho, the walls fell down. Marvelous story. And so the next, the next episode in the narrative, this is the one we didn't do for VBS, um, they go to fight against the little town, the little village of Ai. So it'd be like if you won a battle over, um, you know, Toronto, and some of us want to do that, right? We're like, let's, let's do that. Let's march on Toronto and march around seven times see, with our garbage can. Let's see what happens. Um, I'm just kidding. Welcome visitors from Toronto. <laughs> but the lineup at Costco is really long. I'm just saying that if you're... Anyway, it's fine. We're welcome. Um, but so imagine you, you know, you, you want a great vid- vi- victory against Toronto. And then you think, all right, well, God gave us a great victory against Toronto. So now we're going to like go up against Nobleton. And you're like, this should be okay. Uh, we should do okay against Nobleton because we've just defeated Toronto. But that's not what happened. They went up against AI and they got it handed to them, right? They, they were absolutely routed. They had to force uh, turn tail and run. So everybody knew something was wrong. So Joshua goes to the Lord and he says, Lord, what happened? And the Lord said, there's sin in the camp. Apparently somebody had stolen a bunch of loot from the city in Jericho. And God had said that the entire city was to be devoted to destruction. It was to be destroyed. Everything. They were going to burn the stuff. They weren't going to keep the loot. God wanted to position that military action against Jericho as an act of divine judgment, not as an act of rapacious violence. So he had forbidden all the soldiers to take the spoil, but somebody disobeyed. Somebody had lied. Somebody had presented himself as a holy warrior when, in fact, he was nothing more than a highway brigand. So Joshua assembled the tribes and by casting lots discovered that the name of the thief was Achan. Joshua confronted him and said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today and all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones and they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Wow. That seems pretty harsh. We, we don't often associate the death penalty with thievery. But here's the thing. Achan was representing the Lord. And when you represent the Lord, when you step out as a member of the Lord's army, you are held to a much higher standard. And that's exactly what's going on in the story of Ananias and Sapphira. 
The early church was trying to present herself as the new Israel inside of Israel. They were trying to say, we are the covenant community now. All those who are saved by Christ and who are filled by the Holy Spirit of God are the new covenant community. Well, if you're going to say stuff like that, you better prepare yourself to be held to a much higher standard. Because Old Testament and New, judgment begins with the household of God. Thirdly, as we contemplate this very difficult story, we are reminded that progress in the church is often hampered and impeded by regression. This story powerfully illustrates the fact that, generally speaking, and generally speaking in the past, generally speaking in the future, until the Lord returns, the story of the church is a two steps forward, one step back kind of story. F.F. Bruce says here, the story of Ananias is to the book of Acts what the story of Achan is to the book of Joshua. In both narratives, an act of deceit interrupts the victorious progress of the people of God. That's true, isn't it? Wouldn't wouldn't the book of Acts be a much better story if, if they took this little bit out? I mean, wouldn't it be better if we went directly from the, the incredible act of generosity uh, you know, done by Barnabas, and we went right from that into the incredible outpouring? There's a, a subsequent outpouring of the Spirit. All of a sudden, there's this explosion of, of evangelistic impact. All of a sudden, there's these great works and mighty deeds of power being done. The church takes a great leap forward. Wouldn't it be great if we went right from one good story to an even better story? It would be great wouldn't be true, and it wouldn't be helpful either because it would inevitably give rise to unrealistic expectations. The Bible is bracingly honest. At least it is if you actually read it. You see, I think part of the problem today is that far too many of us in the evangelical world are running around in the culture unbraced by the honesty of the Bible. The biblical illiteracy in the church right now has made us fundamentally unstable. So we don't know how to respond to these challenges. Everything feels new to us, despite the fact that it isn't new, despite the fact that it's predicted. You know, it's like the Bible says, hey, just so you know, folks living in Canada, every, oh boy, every, every year it's going to get cold. But don't, don't worry, like the cold will end and, and the spring will come back. And because we didn't read the warning, every year in December we're like, it's the end of the world! It's the apocalypse, and, and you know, we, we don't know what to do, right? Well, the, the Bible tells us this, this stuff's going to happen, and, and if we read these warnings, if we're familiar with these warnings, we ought to be more stable. We ought to be better braced when we face these kind of challenges, and we are facing challenges. For the first time in five generations on this continent, the tide of Christianity is actually going out, right? Church is declining. And so we're all clutching our our pearls and wringing our hands as if this hasn't happened a dozen or more times in the past. Listen, sometimes the church gets a little too big for her britches. Sometimes there are people in her ranks for the wrong reasons, people who are not true believers. Sometimes there are so many advantages to being a nominal Christian that people connect for all kinds of different motivations. And when that happens, scandal, judgment, and declension are right around the corner. 
But because God is fundamentally committed to his covenant people, judgment and declension never get the last word. G.K. Chesterton said famously, Christendom has had a series of revolutions, and in each one of them, Christianity has died. Christianity has died many times and risen again, for it had a God who knew the way out of the grave. Brothers and sisters, the fact that we are taking you know, one step back right now in our culture does not mean that we are on death's door. Rather, it more likely means that we are being prepared for a great leap forward. And that leads us to our fourth reflection. We are reminded by the story that the judgment of God, painful as it is, very often positions the church for a season of fruitfulness and advance. The judgment of God upon his own people, upon the covenant community, is never to kill them, It is to cure them. Times of great power are always preceded by severe pruning. We see that same basic pattern in the Old Testament story of Achan, the counterpart to the story we're looking at today. God said to Joshua, you cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from you. So God said, listen, I sat you down, not because I've given up on the project. I sat you down, not because I don't love you, not because I'm not committed to you. I sat you down to give you the opportunity to deal with this sin so that we can move forward together. And that's what happened, of course. They, they, they dealt with the sin. They got things sorted out. And the Lord again blessed them and worked a great triumph through them. So here in Acts 5. Once the sin in the covenant community had been exposed, once it had been dealt with, the power of the Lord returned in spectacular fashion. In the very next verse after the story, so we read Acts 5, 1 to 11, look at Acts 5, verse 12. It says, now, now, now is a significant word. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. See that? On the other side of this painful event, there was power and unity in the church. Thanks be to God. I anticipate that we will experience something very similar in the church over the next 10 years. The last three years have produced the most severe pruning, perhaps, in the history of the evangelical church in North America. COVID knocked an awful lot of people out of the church. Some people got caught up in the politics. Other people just lost the habit. Either way, experts estimate that the evangelical church in North America shrunk by somewhere between 20 to 30%. And then, of course, there were the scandals on top of that and the associated exodus and deconstruction. Where does that leave us? I would argue it leaves us leaner, chastened, stronger, and more committed. I would argue it leaves us a church positioned for power and advance. So how should we respond to a story like that? As I mentioned off the top, I I think the story is in the Bible less to be parsed and more to be pondered. We're supposed to ask the question, how could this happen And then also, how should we respond? And as your pastor and a fellow member of this church, let me suggest three resolutions that I think represent a fairly wise and productive response to what we're seeing. The first one is this. Resolve to rigorously audit 
all desires, motivations, and ambitions. This is very important. In our culture, we are told again and again and again to trust your heart. By the way, if you were the devil, isn't that exactly what you would tell people? Because if the, if the way that the devil gets into your life is through the doorway of unchecked desire, then wouldn't the first step be telling everybody, make sure that you affirm every single desire of your heart? Because that leaves all the windows of your house open. One of the <clears throat> most significant differences between the Christian worldview and the secular worldview is that in the secular world, every desire is to be affirmed. Desire is destiny. Do you feel this way? Then you are that way. Do you think this? Do you feel this way? Do you lean that way? Then that's good. The Bible says, well, maybe, maybe not. Check. And you say, well, what do you mean check? Check it against the scriptures. Check it against design. Right? Remember back is the way forward? And, and so actually the the smartest thing we could do after reading this story, because, I mean, again, the sin in this story is not just that they, you know, they got 1.5 for the piece of property and said they got 500 so that they could just be as celebrated as Barnabas. That, the sin was the lie, right? Not just failing to hand over the full amount. The sin was the jealousy in their heart, the desire for vain glory. I want people to clap for me. Where's my balloon? Those little unchecked desires... Those become the footholds that the devil uses to climb into our lives. Do you struggle with lust? Is there just a little something there? It's not a big deal, but it's a little something. That's an open door. Do you struggle with pride? That's an open door. Do you struggle with anger? That's an open door. Paul told the Ephesians, do not let the sun go down in your anger. Do not give the devil a foothold. Every distorted or disordered desire is an open door. It's an open window that allows the devil to crawl into your life and through your life into the life of this church. So find those windows, find those openings, and close them. Nail them shut for your health and safety and for ours. Then secondly, I think it'd be appropriate to respond to the story by resolving to be less destabilized by sin and weakness in the church. Now, let me be very clear. I'm not saying that you should be less outraged by sin in the church. I think, if anything, you'd probably be more outraged. When sin is revealed in the church, it should be dealt with appropriately in every situation, with all appropriate severity. Covering up sin or trying to sweep it under the carpet is a fool's errand. Because if history tells us anything, if the Bible tells us anything, it's that sooner or later, your sin will find you out, Right? That's one of the reasons why the story of Bathsheba is in the Bible. It doesn't matter what you do. You can kill a bunch of people. You can concoct a story. You can bring all your power to bear. Doesn't matter. Your sin will find you out. Because God will not tolerate hidden sin in the household of God. So listen, when sin happens, let's deal with it appropriately. Private sins between members should be dealt with according to the guideline in Matthew 18. As for the leaders, when they persist in sin, the Bible says, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. We don't hide sin in the household of God. We don't protect the leaders. We insist on a high standard of truth. But if there is persistent sin, then there needs to be public rebuke. The stories have to be told. Abusers and deceivers have to be held accountable. Restitution has to be made. Lessons have to be learned. Policies and protections need to be put in place. So to be clear, I, I think we need to be taking sin more seriously in the church. But I don't think we should be destabilized by it. Let me, 
make this as clear and straightforward as I possibly can. What I am saying is this. When some pastor in Texas or when some pastor in Aurelia does something sinful and stupid and unwise and unkind, whatever, that doesn't make God any less God and that does not make Jesus any less the Savior of the world. Sin and scandal can make you sad, it can make you angry, but it should not shake your faith. Listen, don't look at the person next to you right now because that would be awkward, but I'm just saying this. Whether the person next to you in the church is a good person or a bad person, I can tell you this, God is a holy God and Jesus is a beautiful Savior. Can you say amen to that? Listen, I'll, if, if the... If the presence of sin in the church destabilizes your faith, then I would encourage you to take a second look at the foundation of your faith. Because the church is not a museum for finished works of art. The church is a hospital for broken and bleeding people in process. People don't become Christians because they're better than other people. People become Christians because they're broken. They know they're broken, and they know they need to be healed and restored by Christ. So, yeah, yes, sometimes church is a little messy. Sometimes sin gets out of check. Sometimes people are put in positions of leadership who ought not to be there. Sometimes the devil gets a foothold, and whole congregations lose their way. That does happen. But it should not shock you, and it should not rock you in your faith, not if you have read the Bible. Now listen, if, if safeguards weren't in place, and, and if lessons aren't learned, and if sin by the leadership is swept under the rug and covered up, I can buy that as an argument for leaving a particular church, but it makes no sense as an argument for abandoning Christianity as a whole. Where are you going to go? Right? I mean... It, if you got your Bible open, flip, flip it open again. Look, look at Acts 5. Look at, so the problem in our story is jealousy, right? That was the beginning of it all, jealousy. Look at verse 17. After we get this story all sorted out and wrapped up, look at verse 17. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles. So, so what are you seeing? You're seeing that the exact same sin that was in the church causing all these problems earlier in the chapter is also out in the world causing problems out there. Listen, every once in a while somebody will come to me and they'll say, Pastor, man, I just, I don't even know if I believe in Jesus anymore. And I say, oh, how could that be? What, what's going on? And they'll say, well, Pastor, there's just so much sin in the church. I'm like, have you watched the news recently? Like, did you check in on the whole, like, Speaker of the House nonsense over the weekend? I got news for you. There's sin and stupid out there, too. <laughs> but at least in the church, I'll tell you what you've got here. You've got a bunch of sinners. This, that's true. But you know what else you got? you got the blood of Jesus to wipe the record of your sin clean. you got the gift of the Holy Spirit to start transforming your desires, teaching you to lean in the right direction you got the trustworthy guidance of the Word of God, and you got the support of a bunch of humble people who know they're sinners and who know we need to help each other to walk like Jesus. And that gives you more than a fighting chance. So anyway, all I'm saying is this. Moving forward in 2023, let's resolve to be less destabilized by sin in the church. Let's be outraged. Let's up our game in terms of vigilance and process. But let's not pretend as though the continuing existence of sin in the church is somehow an argument for or against the glory of God or for or against the beauty of Jesus Christ as Savior. Because it's not. It's just where we're at in the story.
And then lastly, I think it'd be wise for us to respond to the story by resolving to be more mindful of both the kindness and the severity of God. Somehow, at some point, Ananias and Sapphira lost sight of the character of God. In Acts 5, 9, Peter says, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? To, to, to test the Lord means to test the limits, right? Kids do this with their parents. You, you know, you don't want me to, to do this? Well, let me see. I'll do it a couple times until, you know, some, something happens, until there's a response. And, you know, Peter is saying, what, what in the world possessed you to play that game with God? Who do you think you are? More importantly, who do you think God is? That's what Peter is asking in Acts 5. That's what we ought to be asking as evangelicals as we survey the train wreck that was 2022. Who do we think we are? Who do we think God is? That's a good question. The Apostle Paul reminded his people to think about that. He said, note then, pay attention. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. Let me read that again. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. I suspect that's why this story about Ananias and Sapphira is in the Bible. It is there to remind us that not everybody who was enjoying the, the heyday of Acts chapter 4 made it to the end of Acts chapter 5 to experience the great leap forward that's recorded there. Some of them were cut off. Because before God empowers the church, he prunes the church. Because the bride of Christ must increasingly reflect the character of Christ. And because the Spirit of the Lord is holy, holy, holy. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wake-up call at the start of 2023. Lord, how we would love for different stories to be written about the church at the end of this year. Lord, the warnings of Scripture are part of how we get there. Lord, the accountability that comes within the membership is part of how we get there. And Lord, of course, the biggest part of how we get there is the work of the Holy Spirit in us, transforming us by one degree of glory to the next into the same image as Jesus. So we ask for more of that. And may it start with me, more of that this year. We ask that in Jesus' name.